From KMXT and Kodiak, it's the Alaska Fisheries Report. I'm Terry Haynes. The Alaska Fisheries Report is brought to you in part by the Alaska Marine Safety Education Association, providing U.S. Coast Guard accepted hands-on safety training for all of Alaska's fishermen and their families. AMSEA at amc.org or 907-747-3287. Kodiak's Tanner Crab fleet spent the first two weeks of the season tied up at the docks, awaiting better prices from local seafood processors. And after a highly anticipated opener a week ago Monday, the season is nearly over. Most of the fishery had closed by the end of last weekend. KMXT's Kirsten Dobroth has this update. Fisherman Eddie Perez was selling tanners from his boat, the Vero Victoria, on Monday morning. He had about 500 crabs on board when he pulled up to the dock, and he expected to sell out by noon. Everybody's been really excited, happy that local fishermen are offering to the community, and it's been going pretty good. Kodiak's tanner crab season started last Monday, two weeks after the scheduled opener when the entire fleet refused to go fishing because of low prices from local processors. And after a few early days of heavy rain and fog, the clouds parted and fishing went fast. Kodiak's tanner crab fishery is divided into three main sections. The biggest is the east side, which has a harvest level of 4 million pounds of tanners this year. 99 vessels had been fishing on the east side of the island since fishermen set their gear last week. That entire quota was caught by the weekend, and Alaska's Department of Fish and Game closed the area Sunday afternoon. Fishing is slowing down in other areas, too. Fish and Game announced that the fishery's southeast section would close Monday evening. Just about a quarter of the quota in the fishery's southwest section was left as of Monday. This year's harvest level for Kodiak's entire tanner crab fishery is 5.8 million pounds, more than five times the size of last year. Biologists from Fish and Game expected this year's big quota to be the peak of a cohort they've been watching since 2018. But Perez says he's optimistic about the years to come. By what I saw, I think we got a couple more seasons, healthy seasons coming for us. Meanwhile, more than a dozen boats were sitting on anchor just outside the downtown harbor on Monday. Word on the dock was that wait times to tie up at one of the local processors was four to five days. In Kodiak, I'm Kirsten Dobrath. Support for the Alaska Fisheries Report comes from the Alaska Seafood Marketing Institute, working to raise the value of our seafood harvest for the benefit of all Alaskans. On the web at alaskaseafood.org. Local governments around southeast Alaska are speaking out against a lawsuit that threatens to shut down trolling for king salmon across the region this year. The lawsuit aims to protect endangered orcas in Washington state. 
Ketchikan, Wrangell, and Petersburg are set to join a growing chorus of Alaska voices highlighting the impact the suit could have on the region's fishing fleet. KRBD's Eric Stone reports. The lawsuit from the Washington state-based Wild Fish Conservancy centers on an endangered Puget Sound population of orcas known as southern resident killer whales. Killer whales eat salmon, especially big, meaty king salmon, and the conservation group argues that federal officials haven't properly accounted for the impact the southeast king salmon fishery has on the Puget Sound orcas. Late last year, a federal judge issued a report that threatens to close the southeast king salmon fishery until the National Marine Fisheries Service comes up with a fix. So right now, the region's 1,800 trollers are facing an uncertain future, says Alaska Trollers Association Executive Director Amy Doherty. Our fleet is basically waiting to hear if they can gear up. The winter king salmon fishery is currently underway. The summer king fishery typically opens July 1st. Doherty says king salmon trolling is a $29 million chunk of the economy, almost three times as much when you consider related economic activity like that at fish processors. Governor Mike Dunleavy said on Talk of Alaska last month that the state would fight the pending ruling. Sitka's local government has also adopted a resolution opposing the lawsuit. And later this month, borough assemblies in Ketchikan, Wrangell, and Petersburg will consider adopting resolutions of their own opposing a Chinook shutdown. Ketchikan Gateway Borough Assembly member Glenn Thompson is co-sponsoring one of the measures. It's urgent for the borough to at least take a political stand saying we oppose the shutdown of our troll industry. And we need to work through this and, uh, and resolve the issue. He says a Chinook shutdown would have ripple effects throughout the fleet and the region's economy. That's the money fish. That's the, the, the headliner. Um, and so if you shut down the Chinook fishery, it really has a major impact on all the troll fisheries. Fellow Ketchikan co-sponsor Austin Otis says the suit unfairly targets the Alaska fishing fleet. In a statement, he says the outside group has little to no knowledge about how Alaska manages its fisheries, and he says trolling is sustainable and has little impact on Puget Sound fisheries. Fishermen, processors, local governments, and community members all over Southeast are pitching in cash to help the Alaska Trollers Association fight the legal case. Doherty says Sitka, Petersburg, Pelican, Port Alexander, and Craig have collectively contributed thousands, and Sitka's assembly is considering another $25,000 contribution. We are doing everything we can to keep our fishery viable and our fishermen on the water. Um, we realize the importance to the small southeast economies and the families. Trolling is a small boat fishery, a low impact, hook and line, one fish at a time, and we're very respectful of the habitat and the environment. Ketchikan isn't currently considering a contribution of its own, but Assembly Members Otis and Thompson say they are open to the idea. Reporting in Ketchikan, I'm Eric Stone. Statewide support of the Alaska Fisheries Report comes from Satellite Technical Services, providing satellite communication solutions for commercial fishermen across the state of Alaska. Information and dealers can be found at SatelliteWest.com or by calling 206-321-6896. Kelp grows naturally throughout Alaska's waterways and is also grown and harvested by an expanding commercial seaweed industry. As KSTK's Sage Smiley reports, new research shows kelp has ecological benefits 
by absorbing pollution in the water. Although slippery strands of kelp aren't plants, they can pull carbon and nitrogen from their surrounding environment just like a forest on land. New research from the University of Alaska Fairbanks shows some species of kelp may be especially effective at taking in nitrogen from the water. In other words, kelp may be able to help clean up polluted waterways. For some species, they are kind of like a sponge. Marine ecologist Sherry Umansor is an assistant professor at UAF and led the study. So if there is a lot, they can absorb a lot. But for some species, that, that sponge behavior is a little bit, it saturates faster. So for example, it doesn't matter if there is a lot, it can only absorb so much. Umanzor says it seems like ribbon kelp is more sensitive to nitrogen in the water, so it's a better sponge, while sugar kelp is more slow and steady. To gather data, Umanzor worked with kelp farmers who grew sugar and ribbon kelp side by side. The farmers collected tissue samples and water samples every 30 days until the kelp was harvested, and then sent all the samples to Umanzor's lab. By looking at the changes in water over time, I was able to relate this to the changes in nutrients in the tissue to get an understanding how much they vary one versus the other one. Pulling carbon from water into kelp isn't a new idea. And just this year, Governor Mike Dunleavy proposed a law to update Alaska's regulations to capitalize on carbon credit markets, where the carbon-collecting power of Alaska's underground areas, forests, and kelp could be sold to investors or organizations. But Umansor says her research indicates that the nitrogen-removing properties of kelp are the more compelling finding from the study. The difference between having a lot of carbon and a lot of nitrogen in the water is that carbon is not a contaminant, but nitrogen is. So really a lot of nitrogen can can produce these algal blooms or PSP, if you're familiarized with the the blooms that cause the shellfish poisoning. So this, this is also driven by excess nutrients. So if we have a lot of kelp in the water, we potentially have better a better quality in the in the water column. Carbon sequestration, or the process of capturing and storing carbon from the atmosphere, and nitrogen removal happen on very different timelines. Sequestration is not something that can happen in a, from one month to another. It has to happen in, in hundreds of years. While nitrogen removal to avoid contamination is something that can happen literally in weeks or months. There are plenty of potential directions to go with the knowledge that kelp can help lower nitrogen levels in the water. Umansor says one could be a mutually beneficial relationship between kelp and salmon hatcheries. Perhaps we can, you know, leverage to some extent the nitrogen that is excreted in the salmon hatcheries and actually grow kelp in it, right? And then we will have a win-win we will produce biomass from kelp that can then be processed to produce products, and we will be cleaning the water at the same time. That's an exciting idea for people in the mariculture industry like Hannah Wilson, who's the development director of the Alaska Fisheries Development Foundation. While coastal Alaska native people have used seaweeds for centuries, commercial cultivation is a relatively new phenomenon. She says there was a 200% increase in pounds of seaweed sold for 2020 and 2021. Wilson says some of that could be pandemic-related market depression, but it's still an upward trajectory. Currently, the industry really is focused on um, food markets, and I think there's definitely interest in people growing at a larger scale, you know, maybe for things more like animal feed, you know, kind of maybe like a less 
high quality products, but a larger volume, just trying to kind of diversify that industry. While there aren't very many commercial seaweed farms in Alaska right now, and the state is still working to set up regulatory frameworks and funding resources to help new farmers, the burgeoning industry is taking off. Wilson says learning more about the potential ecological benefits of kelp farming is a way the industry can potentially diversify. There's a slew of funding heading to the state to support mariculture growth. And beyond that more than $75 million in funding for mariculture, Umanzor says her research also points to the value of kelp, whether it's on a farm or growing wild. There are benefits to having healthy kelp overall. I think that we have in Alaska a great opportunity to actually tackle some common problems using smart solutions that are environmentally friendly. From her position, often on a boat, Umanzor says she sees many opportunities for kelp to come. In Wrangell, I'm Sage Smiley. Support for the Alaska Fisheries Report is provided by the Stosh and Claudia Anderson Fund, supporting conservation and harvesting of Alaska's wild, sustainable fisheries. The Alaska Fisheries Report is brought to you in part by Alaska Boats and Permits, Marine Broker for Vessels, Permits, and IFQs. For more information, call 1-907-235-4966 or online at alaskaboat.com. (laughs) 